freedom! CLI, it may sound like a government agency, but it actually stands for COVID-like illness. It is the successor to another thing called ILI or influenza-like illness. Good week, everybody. It is Tuesday as I record this. It may be Wednesday as you listen or Thursday or whatever day you are listening. Thank you for coming back to the Beyond the Fold podcast. I apologize for my absence, but we do have a lot to cover because there are a lot of shenanigans going on. There's a lot of alarmism going on. I will explain COVID-like illness and why we are relying on that. Let's get right into it. So, if you follow me on Twitter at KYLAM8, and I suppose most of you that are listening so far are listening because you are aware of me on Twitter, if you have stumbled upon the podcast here on one of your favorite podcasting platforms, we are on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spotify, etc., then make sure you follow me over on Twitter at KYLAM8. But COVID-like illness, if you follow me, you know is something that I've been relying on a lot lately. And there's a really good reason. Actually, there are many reasons why you're going to hear more about COVID-like illness. Because to whatever extent, the powers that be are relying on cases and other methods and other forms of COVID-19 spread, they're really getting hung up on testing, testing, testing. And the reason being is because if you've got to keep a crisis alive, especially in this case, you've got to rely on cases. And cases don't mean anything at this point. We've talked about this before, right? First of all, first and foremost, cases are misleading because they're not timely and they're not necessarily accurate. Testing is very inconsistent, especially certain forms of rapid testing like antigen testing. It doesn't completely tell the whole story. It doesn't mean you have an infection because there's a lot of false positives, especially a lot of false negatives from what I understand with antigen testing. PCR testing is a little less unreliable, but it doesn't tell the whole story for two reasons. First and foremost, it only tells you that the person had an infection. It's interesting because although serology is supposed to tell you if you have antibodies, whether you had a past infection, PCR, despite the claims, does not actually tell you if you have an active infection. And the reason that is the technical explanation, if if we dumb it down, and I'm not an expert on PCR or testing, but what it means is that when they amplify the tissue, they find the infection was in your bloodstream. They find it was in your system, right? But it doesn't mean that you have a current infection. By the time they test you, you could have had an infection anywhere from a couple days ago to 12 weeks ago. That's a big time frame, right? It doesn't mean that you are an active case. It doesn't mean you have an active infection. And that's just when they actually test you. On average, we know right now in the United States that you could get a positive test back. You could have, let's say you go in Monday, let's say August 1st on, on a Saturday, right? You go into a clinic and you walk in, you get your, your sample taken, you know, take, t- they take the swab up your nostril, right? Very uncomfortable procedure from what I understand. <laughs> Some people say it's not as bad as it's made out to be. Others are like, oh, it's the worst thing in the world. I haven't had it done myself, so I can't comment. But you know, some people are really, really weary about getting it. 
But let's say you go in at Saturday, August 1st. It might be 13 days later, 12 days later. Let's say Friday, Friday the 13th, okay? Uh, you know, interesting example. Friday the 13th, you get a result back from a uh, test you got on a clinic on a Saturday morning 13 days prior. Well, then you find out you're positive. Well, we know that the average duration of infectious period is under seven days, about six or seven days, right, from, from onset of illness, less than 10 days for sure. So you may have already been past the infectious period when you got your test done, but then you're adding 13 days later before you get the result. That's when the state is going to come out and say so many tests we had today, so many positive results we had today. That person that got the test done on August 1st and got the results back on the August, thir August 13th, they may, may have been part of the public disclosure that day, the state reporting X number of cases, X number of tests. But the reality is that person was already infectious days weeks, maybe even months prior to the test coming back. So all the people that are shouting, we must test, test, test more, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't give us valuable epidemiological information because the testing, even if you assume it's accurate, and we know it's not completely, I think, look, there are two schools of thought. There are some that say PCR is worthless. I don't I'm not in that thought. I'm not in that camp, I should say. I think PCR actually is still somewhat valuable in that I can run correlation testing to PCR and CLI, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. And I get a, like a 90% correlation from week to week when I do PCR tests by actual collection or test date compared to COVID-like illness. So there is some value in knowing percent positivity rate of PCR. But that's when you take it by when the test and collection or onset date actually occurred. And that's the problem with the way the states are reporting backlogged data right now. We're not getting complete, timely, accurate information. I happen to use a data set. It's called the PCR Time Series. It's on the hhs.gov site. If you go to data sets and look for COVID, COVID data, say, uh, data sets, it is a PCR time series. It is actually from the CDC, but it's published on hhs.gov. I use that data set for all of my testing information because it's far more accurate than what you're seeing on COVID tracking project and other, state, other sites that rely on state data because the states, again, they're not reporting timely test information. It might be tests from several weeks ago. It's just not timely. The PCR data relies on the labs reporting electronically to the health departments and to the CDC. And so they're taking that data and they're taking ba based on when the test actually occurred or when it was collected if, if they don't know the test date. And this is good because that gives us a better epic curve that is when the spreads are happening. And again, that doesn't mean it's an active infection. So some of these infections could be weeks or even months old. But we're getting more of a correlation to when spread is increasing and decreasing. And so that's why I use this PCR data. It tells a more timely picture, shows a more timely picture of COVID-19 spread. 
But you hear these alarmists and they rely on the testing and it's not, it's just not accurate. So I use that time series in conjunction with COVID-like illness. Now the reason why there is a big push, and this is, this is extending into the White House too. I think you're going to see this big push. I know doc, doc, Dr. Scott Atlas, I've heard that he's really pushing CLI. I know our data group on rationalground.com, we're pushing CLI. And the reason being, because you can look at CLI and what this is in, in its simple form, it's just a measurement of symptoms. When you walk into a hospital and you say, I've got a fever, and then they test you and your temperature comes back 100, let's say 100.4, right? I think that's over the, I think the threshold is 100.3 for COVID and influenza displaying a temperature. So you walk in and you say, I've got these symptoms. I've got a, a, you know, a loss in smell, I've got a loss in taste got a headache, a fever, got a little bit of small cough, you're probably going to meet the COVID-like symptom threshold. What they do is they put all of your symptoms, you describe your symptoms, they put it into the computer, and then the computer system automatically decides if you're showing COVID-like illness. And so what they do then is they take all the people meeting this threshold for CLI, and they just keep track of the percentage of all emergency room visits that are showing COVID-like symptoms. So in this case right now, the national average, I think, is down to 1.6% as of August 14th. That's, that means that out of every, uh, let's say, 1,000, right, 1,000 ER visits in the country, about 160 of them will be displaying CLI. Now, CLI is not a perfect measurement. It has flaws. First and foremost, there is some subjectivity to it. Because if you say you've got a fever and you've got a cough, you know, what happens if you're a little bit of a, a germaphobe, right? What if, if you're just a little paranoid, you think you got COVID when we know sometimes people are so afraid, they think that they have the COVID and then they don't. And there are going to be people like that. They're going to be people thinking they have symptoms when they really don't. So it might overinflate and some people that might be truly symptomatic might not be going into the hospital because they're like, oh, it's no big deal. I don't want to go to the hospital. It's not worth it. I might be a little bit, of si- a little bit sick for a few days, but I'll be fine. So it's not going to be the perfect measurement. And the other thing is some places have different thresholds. It's not going to be the same in every hospital or every state. So some thresholds may be a little bit different. They might be adding to it or subtracting from it later on as far as which symptoms qualify you for CLI. It's not perfect. The system can be gamed a little bit. It's not 100% reliable. We're never going to have a perfectly reliable measurement. But... Because the, syst- the symptoms are computerized, we can access them the very next day, sometimes the same day. We can have quick data, enough of a sample size. We can see when CLI is going up in a location, in a region or state or countrywide. We can see this and access this data in real time. And it's going to be, because it's symptomatic, it's going to give us a better idea of trailing hospitalizations, and, of course, trailing deaths. Cases do not tell us that because not every case is created equal. Symptomatic are generally going to end up in the hospital, a lot of them, not all of them, but they're generally going to end up there, and those are the more serious cases. Right now, we're finding asymptomatic spread, maybe up to 40, 50, 60, even 70% of the total number of cases we're seeing in the country right now. But we still have the alarmists saying, test, 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 test. 
And that's because they want to manufacture a crisis. And I'm not saying that we didn't have a crisis. We had an epidemic. We had a pandemic. It's not going to be that like that for long because cases percent positive, PC, both PCR and the cases that they're just reporting into the media are going down. CLI is going down in every single region. There are 10 HHS regions around the country. It's either going down or staying stagnant in all 10. I would say it's going down in about seven of them, and it's just kind of hanging around in three of them. But it is going down nationally. Hospitalizations have gone down by 10,000 from about 58,000, from a little over 58,000 to down to 14,000 in the last couple weeks, or 44,000, I should say. So it's gone down considerably, almost 20% in the last month. And then, of course, deaths right now, which are still plateaued, are going to be going down here and trailing those hospitalizations and CLR, CLI, ER visits. The deaths will come. They will fall, probably start to fall this week if they haven't already. But, but that's going to happen. But by testing, 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 you find all these meaningless cases that are not symptomatic, people that didn't know they had it, never were going to be symptomatic. Or at most, maybe they get a little bit of a cough, a little bit of a fever for a day or two, and it clears up, right? That's simple stuff. These are things that happen in every single cold and flu season. I don't think anybody escapes a virus in cold and flu season, some sort of virus. It may not be the flu, but it may be any number of a dozen or two dozen cold viruses that go around during cold and flu season. And everybody that gets a runny nose or you know a little congested or a sore throat or a fever, guess what? You got a virus going around. That's just the way it is. And with COVID, unlike some of these cold and flu viruses, most people, over a majority, over 50%, are not showing any symptoms whatsoever. Of course, the alarmist will say, well, that doesn't mean it's not dangerous, even to the people that aren't symptomatic, because you could have some sort of uh, pneumonia or a heart condition, even though you didn't show symptoms. Well, guess what? That can happen with the flu and the cold as well. Myocarditis is not just unique to COVID-19. It's been associated with cold and flu for years. This is not anything new. It's a rare situation. It doesn't happen to everybody. It doesn't happen to most people. It's rare, but it does happen. And that's not going to be unique to COVID-19. But most of these cases will never be symptomatic. And the people that are telling you the blue check marks and the media members out there, the epidemiologists, the quote-unquote experts, the ones in the media saying we need to test, test, test more because testing apparently 55 to 6 million people a week, which is three times more, or which is more than the flu number of tests in a whole three-year period, 5 million in one week is as much as we've tested for the flu in three years. But that's not enough for some people. And it's because they want to manufacture a crisis. It's, it's a simple fact. This is not a conspiracy. This is a fact. There are some people in the media that have a financial, a vested interest in developing a vaccine or some kind of pharmaceutical treatment. They will profit off of this. And to do that, they need to keep people stare, scared and reliant on their pharmaceuticals. If I were to tell you to tomorrow that everything was going to go away, right? That, that the cases were going to go away. CLI, hospitalizations and deaths. If, if, if I were to tell you, starting tomorrow, everything would be completely downward and this is going to go away in 30 days. And everybody in, out there in our country believed that. 
Would there be any more fear remaining if they knew that was true? Of course not. Nobody would care about masks or social distancing. Certainly not about waiting for a vaccine, right? It would be over with. But they need people to be afraid, so they're trying to push the vaccines. Now, to be clear, I'm not anti-vaccine, not anti-vax at all. I think vaccines can be helpful, especially for the flu, especially with kids under five years old. I think the flu is very dangerous, and it's proven it's very dangerous to young children. I think it should be up to the parents to decide whether their kids get a vaccine, but I also think the parents should be using discretion and err on the side of caution when deciding that, and I think that they should get vaccine for kids. That's just my stance. I'm not trying to push vaccines on you, but I do think that's the responsible thing to do for kids. But I still think it should be up to the parents and up to the individuals to decide if they want a vaccine. But these people don't want to leave it up to you. They want to mandate vaccines, and they're doing so, many of them, not all of them. I I can't say all of them don't care about your health, but many of them don't. Many of them care about their wallets, their pocketbooks. They are trying to profit off of this situation, off of this crisis. The only way to do that is to extend the crisis to the point where everybody thinks the only way out is to get a vaccine. That's happening right now. We've seen Maricopa County just said they recommend masking until either there are zero cases or a vaccine that is at least 40% effective. They say you should wear a mask and social distancing until one of those two things has happened. That's what I'm talking about, the fear-mongering. They are trying to push it on everybody. And we have to put our feet down. We have to draw a line in the sand and say no more. And to do that, we have to be educated and continue to look at the data. Because, look, there needs to be room for science. And when I say science, I don't mean Well, this is the only way you're allowed to think. There's no room for dissension. There's no room for disagreement. You have to believe this one thing. And that's not how science works. Science is the process of learning, studying, experimenting. It is the process. It is not the end result. Sometimes we come to a scientific conclusion where there is almost no doubt. Although that's very actually rare in science that we get something where we can say 100% this is the truth, this is fact, is very rare. We can conclude this is likely, it's not likely, it's probable, it's not probable, but we rarely get something in science to say this is 100%. And we haven't gotten that with masks or social distancing or any of this stuff. We've gotten away from the science. Instead, the science has become, you need to listen to the experts because they say 100% what they say goes, and that's not science. We need to be cognizant of science. We need to be cognizant of the data because that's what's going to get us out of this. We have to prove these people wrong. We've got to be better than them because they're being reckless with their claims. They're being reckless with their mandates. And we have to show, well, this is what the data says. It may not be 100%, but there's, and, you know, there's wiggle room for sure because that's science. But the data says conclusively that your stance doesn't have much merit. And we need to do that because they are going to try to continue harvesting cases. And the only way they can do that, the only way that they can jack up the cases and jack up hospitalizations and ergo liberally code deaths 
is by finding more tests. The more they test you, whether it's saliva, PCR, antigen, whatever form of testing that they find, that's the only way they're going to find more cases. So we have to rely, I think, on COVID-like illness, CLI, because that way we are stripping away past infections and we're stripping away asymptomatic infections, which are not very dangerous. That's not to say that we have zero asymptomatic spread, but asymptomatic spread is not as dangerous, depending on which study you look at. That's still kind of being debated. I'll leave room for that. You can debate that on your own, your own time. I'm not telling you how to think. I do think that asymptomatic spread is less than symptomatic spread, but that's just my opinion. You might read different studies and come to a different conclusion on that. But I do know asymptomatic is not very harmful to most people. And so that's why we need to get away from the reliance on testing because people with ulterior motives or sinister motives out there, however few or many they may be, are going to rely on tests. And CLI will strip that away, get down to a quicker, more accurate, timely representation of spread of COVID-19. Of course, that may depend whether it comes back or not may depend on seasonality and herd immunity thresholds. Those are two things that we need to continue to watch. I don't think it's an accident. There was, of course, according to Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida on Tuesday, they did a, uh, a study of anti, uh, antibodies, okay, serology results, right? And they found between 20 and 26% of all people in Florida that took serology testing had antibodies, and that means that theoretically, between twenty and twenty per six, twenty and twenty per, uh, I cannot speak today. Twenty and twenty six percent of the population have in, have been infected with COVID nineteen throughout this. And of course, there are two things that work to keep in mind. That estimation could be a sampling bias because people that thought they were already positive with COVID nineteen came in to get serology tests. So that would kind of imply that it's not a true random percent of the population. So that could inflate the number artificially just a little bit. On the other hand, antibodies don't always linger in the system for more than a few weeks. So there could be many more people that had it, didn't know they had it, and didn't get tested for antibodies. Or they did and may have come back negative because the antibodies were already out of their system. So two ways to look at that. But I do think Florida is probably over the 20% threshold, and that is the 15 to 20% is the threshold that Nobel laureate Michael Levitt has said he believes countries and states are burning out because of herd immunity. And herd immunity just meaning people are immune from the virus because of cross-immunity due to T-cells, cross-immunity being other viruses, other cold viruses, etc., and that gives them immunity to this virus. He thinks that it's happening at 15 to 20%. And it's interesting, Florida is definitely on its way down. And we estimate them, COVID19-projections.com estimates Florida being at 21.7% infection prevalence. Arizona is over that 20% threshold. Texas is over that 20% threshold. New York, also around 23%. You're seeing a pattern here. That countries and states, once they get to about 15 to 20%, are burning out. Does that mean it's herd immunity? Not necessarily. It could be seasonality disguised as herd immunity. And by that, I mean there could be a pattern of where you are on the globe, latitude and longitude, 
that determines when you start getting spread with COVID-19 right now. And that pattern could be similar in similar and other latitudes, sharing your similar latitude. And so it could burn out right about the same time because the spread is about the same in those regions. So it could be seasonality. It could be herd immunity. It could be both. But there's no denying that th those two factors are playing at least a little bit of a role because of the similarity we're seeing with infection burnout in these places at the same time. So we have to keep an eye on that. But if it comes back, they are going to want to test, 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 because that's the only way they can draw this crisis out with more cases. And believe me, they're dishonest enough to lie about it. We've seen it with the New York Times. You may have seen this last week. I've, I've spoken before about excess deaths. And the New York Times is at it again. They're still being dishonest about excess deaths. They claimed last week that excess deaths have reached over 200,000 in the United States. Now, as we sit on August 18th, the CDC COVID data tracker reports about 169,000 deaths reported, just over, okay? Now, it's for sure there will be more deaths reported for these past couple weeks. Right now, the CDC has deaths for the week ending August 15th, meaning they're, the last few weeks are going to lag, but they're adding deaths every single weekday to the totals for the 15th, for the 8th, for the 1st, back in July. We're still seeing totals being added for June and May. Those are rare, but you still get some. So right now we're about 170,000. What the New York Times is saying is there are over 200,000 excess deaths now through those weeks, through August 15th, but they just haven't been added yet. Those are the totals that are estimate excess deaths over a normal period, two times standard devi deviation of the five-year average across the country. They're saying it's over 200,000 through the current week, August 15th. Now, that's misleading for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, if you go to the CDC excess associated deaths page, you do find a range that goes from 165,000 to 223,000. Now, you may think, wow, that's a big range, right? It is. That's over 50,000 range, meaning the low end estimate is 165,000. The high end estimate is over 225,000. That's over 55, 60,000. So it could be anywhere in that range is what the CDC is saying. Now, there are two things here to know about excess range. Number one, those are low estimates and high estimates of the projections. Number two, it also depends on which excess threshold you use. Because they have two thresholds. There's the average. That's the five-year average I told you about. It's not population adjusted, by the way. It's just a five-year simple average. The excess threshold is a little higher. It's two times standard deviation over the five-year average, which is about two. It works out to about 2,000 more than the average for each week. And they do it by calendar week. So the projection of high and low also depends on which threshold you use. If you're just using the average threshold, it's going to be a lot higher projection because you only need to be over the five-year average to be in excess. If you use the excess threshold, which is the 95% confidence interval, two standard deviations, then it's going to be a lot lower. I prefer using the excess threshold, which is a higher standard, because since the five-year average does not take into account population adjustments 
and it doesn't take into account variance, I prefer to use that higher excess threshold. That is going to significantly change. That's why you got a difference between 50 to 60,000 between high and low. It's going to significantly change the calculation. New York Times is telling you it's over 200,000 based on the high projection with the low threshold, the average instead of the excess. And they're not telling you <laughs> that a lot of those excess deaths are also including all those lockdown deaths we talked about. The ones from higher heart attacks, people that were afraid to go to the hospital, or cancer screening patients, like stage 3 and stage 4 patients that may be dying of cancer because they didn't get the treatment or uh, the discovery, uh, uh, the biopsies. They didn't get those in time. The people that were dying of other causes in this country are magnifying the lockdown deaths, and that's increasing the excess threshold of deaths. So let's say that we use the inflated New York Times 200,000 deaths right now. If there are 40 to 50,000 lockdown deaths above average, deaths that are caused by the lockdown, that means that there are only actually 150,000 COVID-19 deaths. And when we look further, we see on the underlying causes page of the CDC, we find only 92% of the total reported deaths through August 12th, which was about 148,000, only 92% of those, 137,000, were actually underlying causes on the death certificate. The way, this is, the way these death certificate works, if COVID-19 is probable or suspect, probable, suspected or, or confirmed and the certifier believes that COVID-19 was the underlying cause of death, and they're going to rule that in almost every case, if they think that there is a chance COVID actually caused the death, they're going to rule it as the underlying cause, which will be the bottom line of what they call the part one of death certificate. Whatever the bottom cause is that caused the chain of events, let's say there are three causes in part one, COVID-19 would be listed at the bottom, and then the two other underlying causes would be above that. And that means that the final causes of death are just the chain reaction, where the first one listed at the bottom would be COVID-19. That's the underlying cause. So what we're finding here is 92% of these deaths, COVID-19 was the underlying cause in part one. If you are discovered to have died with COVID-19, but it was not the underlying cause. It's considered a multiple cause, either because it was the final part of death in the chain reaction, or it was a positive result. It was considered a contributing cause, which goes in part two, but that means it was not actually what caused the death or the underlying chain of events. So we're finding only 92% are actually underlying cause. And remember, if you, let's say, suffer a heart attack and you had a heart condition, but you had COVID-19, basically they're saying, well, COVID-19 caused the heart attack. Whether it actually did or not, they're saying it did. And so again, 92% underlying cause, but we know not all those 92% are actually deaths from COVID-19. In fact, when you look at the excess deaths I talked about and you use the higher excess threshold, only about 86% of COVID-19 deaths are over the excess threshold, which would be the higher two standard deviations, and that means only about 86% are about, right now, are above normal. But if we look at all those lockdown deaths and we start to subtract them, and we count them out, an ethical skeptic on Twitter, you might want to check him out if you haven't already, he has done a tremendous job analyzing possible lockdown deaths. He's found as of August 1st, could be as many as 44,000, and that might be an undercount, it might be higher than that, but 
he's estimated about 44,000 deaths from lockdown. So if we subtract 44,000 from our 86% excess threshold, I find there's about 93,000 or roughly 55% of the official death count are actually likely from COVID-19. And that's where we find the real effect of COVID-19 on our society, I think, around 55% of the deaths. And this is also found, you could corroborate this in the CDC excess, which is another reason why I'm so upset at the New York Times. Because the New York Times will tell you 200,000 excess deaths and they'll imply that most of them are from COVID-19. They say, yeah, well, you know, some of these might be a few other deaths for other reasons. But they kind of dance around it and just want you to believe that it's all from excess from COVID-19. But if you look at the CDC excess without COVID-19, you find a range anywhere from 70,000 to 120,000. So even without COVID-19, there is a huge number of excess deaths in this country. And so I think personally that about 95,000, just under 95,000 or 55% of the official death count from COVID-19 is the real death count from COVID-19, not just with COVID, but from COVID. This will be studied, researched, analyzed, and hopefully discovered for many, many months and years from now, but hopefully quickly, sooner rather than later, because we need to stop the narratives. We need to not allow New York Times to continue to focus on lofty excess deaths numbers without giving the full scope of what's really going on. And we can't let them test, test, test us to death because they will attempt to manufacture a crisis as long as this virus hangs around. Cases, cases, cases. They will keep you in line and keep you scared by reporting cases. We can't let them do that. So make sure you stick around with me. Go to rationalground.com. Use the hashtag rationalground on Twitter. Let's get the word out. Rationalground.com, Justin Hart, Aaron Ginn. Phil Kerfin, many, many people, many great people doing excellent research. We're going to keep people informed. So please, please spread the word about rationalground.com. Use the hashtag, hashtag rationalground. Any of you joining the efforts, I'm calling you our rational guard. The rational guard army. Spread the word, hashtag rationalground, or go to rationalground.com for more analysis and research. We will try to get the word out at what is really going on. That is not what you're going to hear in the mainstream media or the New York Times. I am Kyle Lamb. This is the Beyond the Fold podcast. Thanks for giving me a listen. Please sure to spread the word. More COVID-19 research, opinions. Uh, we'll, we'll hash it all out here in coming episodes. You can find us on Apple iTunes. Uh, we are on Spotify, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and many other third-party apps. Catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Fold.